Good morning. Good morning. morning. Thank you so much. My name is John uh, Shaw. I'm a community group leader here at Grace, and my wife Kate and I and our two boys, Graham and Elliot, are also missionaries sent by this congregation to the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, So it's just such a privilege to be here this morning sharing with you. Um, I don't know why I feel compelled to tell you this, but I just wanted to tell you this little story. I completely forgot before the previous service that I was chewing gum. So when I came up to speak, uh, when I went back to, to my seat, my wife just leaned over and said in this really like lovely, uh, I'll be honest, a little judgy wife voice, are you chewing gum? So I had somebody else come up to me and said, I chewed the gum pretty elegantly while I was talking. So that's the first, but you don't get to witness it. I'm so sorry. I took it out. Apparently had the effect of like the bouncing ball in a sing-along while I was speaking. So don't know why I felt compelled to share that. Today I'm going to be talking about um, the paradox of poverty, kind of coming to the, uh, to the end of a series that we started some weeks earlier. Uh, about 40 years ago, a book was written called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger by somebody named Ron Sider. And it was, ended up being a really influential and powerful book in North America. Partly because the North American church, uh, if you take all the wealth in the world, the top 7% of all the wealth in the world, 90% of Americans are in that group. So so 90% of Americans are in the global top 7%. So we are a rich country, and Christians in this country are rich. And the people in this room, the vast majority of us, are probably in that tippy-top category in terms of global wealth. So it was a powerful book, started a great conversation. One response to this book was a book called Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators by a guy named David Chilton. Uh, The idea that there's some kind of guilt leverage that certain Christians are trying to play against other Christians. So perhaps when I said I was going to talk about poverty, you looked at me and you thought, oh, I bet that's a guilt manipulator up there. I'm going to do my best this morning to avoid using guilt as a framework for how God wants us to understand poverty, partly because I'm excited to talk about this, as poverty is something that's very close to the heart of God. If you read the scriptures, God's heart towards the poor uh, is incredible. And in fact, I think in the, in the framework of spirituality and the spiritual life, we are the poor. We are the poor to God. So praise God that his heart is for the poor. One issue that I think happens when we're talking about poverty in the framework of rich Christians in an age of hunger versus productive Christians in an age of guilt manipulators is that poverty is externalized. It's something that's happening outside of the church. So the issue of poverty is is structural, for example. Well, there's tremendous income inequality, or certain countries lack educational structures, or there's political repression. These are structural problems that produce poverty. I think the other aspect of it is poverty becomes something technical. Okay, well, I think we can deal with poverty if we break it down into its constituent problems. One problem is a lack of water. So let's go, let's dig a well, we give people water, we're helping to alleviate poverty. Or we need a hospital, let's go build a hospital, people have access to healthcare, we've helped address the situation of poverty. These are not bad. In fact, I think these these can be wonderful things. But I think what this conversation sometimes obscures is the role of poverty in our own lives and hearts and in our own community as a community of believers. I think it's important to think about this because I think actually this is the biblical framework of understanding poverty. It's as a relationship in community. So I base this conversation, this this time together um, on the word of God, but also on my own experience. As I mentioned, my family and I 
are called to serve in the Democratic Republic of Congo, that big country right in the middle of Africa there. And in September of this year, God willing, uh, we'll be going back there uh, to serve indefinitely. <clears throat> but I think the paradox of my experience of working in Congo, my family uh, were there, is that we were working in a country where per capita people earned $455 a year. So if you think about the North American church, man, the Congolese church is at whatever the opposite end of the spectrum of the North American church in terms of wealth. Uh, per capita, Congo is uh, either the poorest or one of the poorest countries in the world by just about any metric you want to use. Again, the paradox of my experience wasn't that poverty was so devastating. In some ways, you can anticipate that. It's that I feel like I learned more about sacrificial generosity from our brothers and sisters in Christ in Congo than I've learned anywhere else in the world. And I also learned more about the state of my own heart towards the poor by the witness of our brothers and sisters in Christ in Congo. So this morning, I really want to focus on two things. The first is how the Word of God frames poverty in a relational framework and has high expectations for the people of God when it comes to engagement with the poor. I think the second major issue is the biggest barrier in engaging with poverty, it's not structural, it's not technical, rather it's overcoming a deep and entrenched poverty mentality within our own hearts <clears throat> that affects everything about how we approach God, other people in the world. Okay, let's start with this idea. What does it mean that uh, poverty in scripture is primarily described in relational terms? Well, let's look back at the foundations of, of God choosing his chosen people and setting expectations for how they should live in the world. This is from Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 15, God is describing a year of jubilee where the debts within the community of the chosen people are forgiven, and there's equity established again, economic equity within the people of God. Uh, in verse 4, God says this, However, there should be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance he will richly bless you. The next verse, I don't have it up here, but is, if only you strictly obey the voice of the Lord, being careful to do all this commands. So this is a conditional promise. The promise is, if you are obedient to, to eliminate poverty among your people, I will bless you because everything that you have in this land is because of my provision and promise. So, again, the, the giving, the sacrificial giving, the generosity is not because of who the people of God are. It's because of who God is, that the source of all they have is the Lord. So how can they begrudge others in their community in need? This is because of God's generosity that they have anything. And that God's plan is for individual people within his chosen people, using those people to serve the needs of the poor in their own community. This vision is not just a vision from the Old Testament, from the Old Covenant. It goes throughout Scripture. You can find it all over the place. But we're going to jump forward into uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, where we read, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? How can the love of God be in that person? Again, in this passage, we're in the new covenant. The people of God are not bound by the law. This isn't a command, this is a warning, this is a check yourself. If there are people in your community who are in need, and your heart is not inclined to pity them, you're not, your instinct is not to serve them and to understand what their needs are and to engage in that need, something is really off in you. How can the love of God be in you? I think 
if we are experiencing uh, the love of God as an instinct, it's intuitive to want to seek out, find, and engage with the poor in our community. But I think instead, if we're not experiencing as an instinct, if instead we're intellectualizing, oh, well, this person doesn't manage their money that well. I saw last week they bought this car they couldn't afford. I think this kind of intellectual engagement is the opposite of this emotional intuition to want to serve because we're compelled by the love of God. We have another word from 1 Timothy 5.8 that says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Man, that is a sharp rebuke. Uh, in, I want us to pay attention to, to one progression that's happened in these passages. And that is, the closer the, relation, the relational space between people, the more intense the expectation that God has for provision. So when it's the generic people of God, there's an expectation that poverty is addressed. But when you have a brother and sister in Christ, a member of your same community that's in need, the question is, man, if you don't care for them, do you love God? But listen to this, if somebody's in your family and you don't care for them, you're not a believer. You're not part of the community. This is kind of an in-out metric of whether or not your heart is right and you're, you're living in community with the Lord. So uh, the, the issue in these passages is not poverty as an external thing. It's poverty as an issue of community. And the closer relationships are to one another, the higher the expectations of meeting the needs of the poor within our own community. This is taken very seriously by the Lord. And again, it's about the capacity of the giver, the person who's being generous, not of the receiver, of their worthiness as a poor person. Are they worthy of this gift? Are they worthy of care? The default assumption is you are, you are inclined by your love of God and your place in community to yearn to seek out and meet the needs of people. I think what's important here is this is not a radical call to give, actually. Uh, giving is sort of default. Uh, if you're in a family, let's say you have a kid, and your kid is hungry, and you have money, it's not like a miracle that you go out and buy food and bring it home and feed your own kid. That's an expectation. So I think the radical call is not the provision of people in your life. It's who are the people in your life. The radical part of this is the relationality that God calls us to. God calls us to draw the poor close to us, to make them part of our community, to make them part of our family, such that our obligation to them is not something we can escape or rationalize away. It's something we instinctively try to engage with. Man, for me, these truths uh, hit really, really hard a few years ago um, during an interaction with one of my good friends in Congo named Kizito. This is Kizito. He's the guy with the wonderful blue bow tie. He's wearing a full tuxedo. Uh, Kizito wore a full tuxedo probably once a week. He was a phenomenally fashionable guy. Uh, he was not a wealthy guy. He probably had maybe three suits, but one of them was his tuxedo. And uh, whenever he walked into the room, I was always like, man, you're looking good, Kizito. He was full of joy. He was a worship leader. He was just a super, super fun guy. Every time I saw him, we had just had a wonderful conversation. He really encouraged me. But one day in particular, uh, when I met him, he was very somber. He just seemed really down. He seemed really burdened. And I said, hey, Kizito, what's going on? Well, he told me, hey, yeah, this has been a really hard week. Um, my daughter, her name is Promise. She's three. She's been ill with malaria, very, very ill. And we've run out of the money to be able to pay for her medical treatment. So last night, the doctor said that he gave her kind of a 50-50 chance of surviving the day. And I'm just praying. I'm just giving her life to the Lord. 
And uh, you may not know this, but uh, every hour uh, in the world, according to UNICEF, 50 children die of malaria, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. So this is his child promise. I could have just said, oh man, Kizito, that's interesting. I don't know if you know this, but statistically that's actually not surprising that your daughter might die of malaria because she's a child in sub-Saharan Africa. This is a leading cause of death for many children. That's like a disgusting response. She, this wasn't part of a structural issue. This was his daughter. Uh, and I was just, I was devastated for him. I was devastated with him. I was just thinking about the helplessness he must be feeling that his daughter is sick and he can't provide from her, and yet his faith, trusting her fate to the Lord's. So I said, hey, Kizito, you know, like, what is, what do you need uh, to be able to, to treat your daughter's malaria? He said, $20. Gosh, and can you imagine if I had been like, oh, $20, oof, I hope you can find it, have a great day, had $20 in my pocket, but I'm going to go ahead and use that for something else. I, I've got my own plans. That's like, that's revolting. That's disgusting. Nobody would live in that way. So I gave Kizito $20, and praise God, uh, they were able to treat his daughter, and she's alive today. This was her birthday that she celebrated a couple months ago. I don't think you're looking at me right now thinking, oh my gosh, what a hero. Look at this guy. He gave somebody $20 to save their daughter's life, a close friend of his. I think your expectation is obviously I would do that. Obviously any of us would do that if we had the capacity to. The point is that the relationality of me to the poverty that I experienced in my friend's life compelled a moral obligation. I felt an urgent sense of responsibility for Kizito and his daughter Promise. The point is that relationships and this radical call to relationality with the poor transforms how we understand poverty from being structural or technical to being a relational problem that we are personally implicated in. The second story I want to share from Congo is uh, about a time of violence, a few months ago I shared that when my family were there and uh, Lauren Halio, some of you know Lauren, were there um, in Congo, there was a great deal of violence that broke out in the area that we were living in. And tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people ended up being displaced and traveling to try to find safety in the community that we were living in, uh, which at the time was very safe. So I'm not exaggerating, literally every day, hundreds of families would be coming to our town just exactly like this, the road looked exactly like this. Everything they owned on their backs, everything they owned on their heads, the whole family together. Some people had family in town, they would find a place to stay in their homes, many people didn't. So what they would do is they would just gather in the center of the town and just sit there. And they would just wait all day and just hope that somebody in that town found them and said, come stay with me. That's not really remarkable, people are in need everywhere. The incredible thing is that every day that happened Somebody in that town found these people in the center of town and said, come home with me. People they'd never met. People who are making the equivalent of, if you're doing pretty well, $150 a month with families of their own, struggling to make it themselves, are taking entire families into their homes. Man, the level of sacrifice and the intensity of sacrifice for people they didn't know, they had no connection with, they had no obligation to. In fact, further than that, some of the people they took into their homes were from groups where there was deep ethnic enmity, where there had been conflict between ethnic groups. So it wasn't just that the people they were taking in were strangers, it was that they were potential enemies, and yet they did it. Gosh, I was so convicted experiencing this every day. Um, we had a small family stay in our home, but compared to the situation of my neighbors, compared to the situation of my friends, me taking a family into my home was nothing compared to the sacrifice that my brothers and sisters in Christ there 
uh, had to go through. Why do I share this? I share this kind of for, for, for two reasons. One is, I feel like this is what Paul did when he was writing the epistles, is he was saying, hey, church here in Ann Arbor, I just want you to know how amazing the church in Congo is. And I want you to be encouraged that the Spirit of God is working there, and the Spirit of God can work among you too. So I just want to bring that encouragement from Congo. Uh, the second thing is, while I was going through this, a passage from Scripture really, really stood out to me. It's from Matthew 26. The scenario is that Christ is in the final days of his ministry. He's about to go to the cross, and he's in the home of somebody named Simon. And uh, a woman comes in, she's uninvited, and she has what is called in the Bible an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she places it on Christ's feet. The disciples are really upset. They're like, hey, man, you could take this alabaster flask of oil, sell it, and serve a lot of poor people. And Christ's response to them is, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Gosh, and as I was reflecting on that, and after seeing the witness of the Congolese church, I just found myself asking this question. Do we? Do we have the poor among us? Not like structurally in the world, of course we do. Not like in the church, capital C, everywhere, sure. Do we, Grace Ann Arbor, have the poor among us? But then, do you? Like, do you and your family have the poor among you? And that was a question I asked myself, and I asked Kate, do we have the poor among us, Kate? This is, this, is, this is what Christ was assuming as a de facto position of the church. The church is such a body that the poor are among them, and it is always our responsibility and blessing to be able to serve them. So I'm not saying that the body of Christ in America is somehow wholly different than the body of Christ that Christ established on earth at the end of his ministry. We're in the same lineage. We're in the same trajectory. And I think the inclination of our hearts must be the same as the inclination of the heart of Christ here. I don't think there's an answer to that. I think that was just a question that I felt led to ask. Do we have the poor among us? I mean that as a, as a corporate body. I mean that as individuals. I mean that in your families and in your lives. Man, if you're anything like me, when somebody asks you a question like that, immediately you go to your head and you think, oh, well, yeah, well, you know what I did is I donated to this thing and, oh, actually, the other time I did this or that or, you know, the poor are kind of far away. I think there might be poor over here. I did the Google Maps. It's hard for me to get back and forth. Uh, I don't have a great place to go. I don't really have the time to do it. What, are poor people going to live in my house? So instead of this inclination, this instinct to say, yeah, gosh, where are the poor in my life and how can I serve them? I try to intellectualize it away. Uh, if you have the same churning in your heart when you think about the problem of poverty and the demand to be relational in terms of how you respond to poverty, I think you share my disease. I believe that I have a disease, and it's a congenital spiritual disease. And what it is for me is a poverty mentality. And I think before we address how we engage with poverty in the world, the first question is, how do I engage with a systematic and system-wide attitude of my own impoverishment this imagination that I have that I'm always in an era of lack, I'm always in an era of need. I really appreciate it, Sung uh, sharing that letter from G.K. Chesterton last week when asked, what's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton's response was, I am. And I think this is the place we too have to start as the church when we think about how to engage poverty. The issue is, when I look at my life, not only do I not think about how to share my blessings, mostly what I think about is how I wish I had more blessings. And in fact, when I look at the plenty of my life, 
Mostly what I see is lack. Mostly what I see is absence. You know, this isn't always financial. Sometimes this is personal. Oh, I wish my job was going a little bit better. Or I wish I had something going differently in my reality. I'm just, I'm not quite satisfied with where I'm at right now. I feel like the main character of uh, a novel written by the German author Goethe, who spends his entire life earnestly seeking after happiness, believing that maybe that next relationship, that next job, that next degree is going to finally satisfy a deep well of need in his heart to be satisfied and happy. He's fantasizing about finally achieving that thing that will make him happy. And then he discovers this. He says, alas, when we have attained our object, when the distant there becomes the present here, all is changed. We are as poor and circumscribed as ever, and our souls still languish for unattainable happiness. This is key because we can't experience God's blessings as rich as they are. We can't give generously. We can't seek proximity to the poor relationally because we see ourselves as the poor. We see ourselves as those with absence and lack and need in our lives. So I think the deepest craving, perhaps the most primal craving of all of our hearts is satisfaction. We long to be satisfied. We long to scratch that deepest itch in our hearts that makes us feel like we're done, like we can be content, like we're settled. I think the issue with that is we are absolutely terrible at identifying what that need is. This goes all the way back to the very, very beginning of time. Think about the Garden of Eden. God has literally given Adam and Eve everything, everything. Every good thing in the world is theirs. It's before them. And they cannot see the entire world of created good, not just materially, but spiritually, in terms of companionship, relationship with the Lord, health. They can't see those blessings. All they see is that one thing that they're not allowed to have. And that is the inclination of their hearts. It's just laser beam towards that thing. Not only is it not a good thing, God tells them, this is going to kill you. Go ahead and avoid it. That's still what they want. And I think if you can imagine this reality of being given everything in the world and still feeling like there's a lack and absence, I think that's the tension we live in today. This kind of mania, this inability to value things correctly because of some deep twistedness and sickness in our hearts is not just something that people in the church talk about or happened in Genesis. There's like a, a really bizarre historical moment called tulip mania that I want to share with you right now. So imagine it's 1637, we're in Amsterdam in Holland. And Dutch merchant fleets have been traveling throughout the world, getting super rich, trading all these amazing goods from the world into Europe. And particular Dutch traders are just getting astronomically wealthy. Well, they're seeking ways to demonstrate their power and prestige to one another. This being Holland, in an extremely stereotypical way, they choose tulips as their way to demonstrate prestige and power to one another. Not just any tulip, this tulip. This is like the tulip. It's called the Semper Augustus. And it has this interesting striation on it because of a virus in the genetics of this tulip that causes the color to break. They call it a break in color. And the genetic problem with this tulip prevents it from reproducing. So if you buy the tulip bulb and grow this tulip, you can maybe grow it one other season and that's it. So basically you have one tulip out of one bulb. By March of 1637, a mania of value over this tulip got so crazy that one tulip bulb sold for the equivalent of 274 times its weight in gold. So in today's dollars approximately, that's like between 250 and $300,000 for a single tulip bulb. A month later, 
April 1637, this entire market collapsed, and these things were basically worth what they normally would be as a pleasant thing to have in your home. So this idea of tulip mania, our complete incapacity to be able to judge accurately what the value of a thing is, and to invest what are basically meaningless material objects with inordinate value is something that humans are inclined to do over and over again. I think that's true in my own life. Certainly I value ridiculous and random things. With far, I give them far more value than they could ever intrinsically have. And then I look at the things that are truly valuable. I remember praying for years, God, please give me a wife. Give me someone I can live with who can love me, who we can do ministry together. And he gave me a phenomenal wife. Uh, my wife, Kate, is just an amazing woman. I'm so blessed. But let me just be totally candid with you. I find myself all the time thinking, man, God, thank you so much for Kate. She's amazing. Now, if you could just fix this one thing about her, that would be super awesome. God, I love the house I'm living in. It's so great. If it could just have a second bathroom, I think I would really be happy. My car's great, God. I love it. I would really love a Tesla Model X, though, if that would be possible. I just find myself relentlessly unsatisfied, even with the blessings that God gives, gives me, even in response to my desires. Intellectually, I think you and I know the next thing is not going to satisfy us. But viscerally, kind of from our gut, I think we have no idea what will satisfy us. And our hearts are inclined towards things that not only will not make us happy, that will actively make us unhappy. Well, that's it. Have a great morning, everybody. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Praise God, praise God, praise God, we have the gospel. And there's hope in the power of Jesus Christ. So if you're like me and you're afflicted with this pernicious poverty mentality that affects the way you see just about everything in your life, the news, the good news is that there is a cure. And the cure is the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of the Beatitudes. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot this quote. It's a great one. Uh, this is again about poverty mentality. Charles Spurgeon, you say, if I had a little more, I should be very satisfied. You make a mistake. If you're not content with what you have, you would not be satisfied if it were doubled. Social science research bears this out. Matthew chapter 5, 6. Christ says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Man, I think this is uh, an incredibly powerful promise from the Lord. And I think it's the key in freeing us from the prison of the poverty mentality that we're locked in. This promise is the way off the hamster wheel of relentless disappointment and dissatisfaction with our lives and our circumstances and subsequently our incapacity and unwillingness to engage relationally with the poor. See, under the promises of Matthew 5, we're not living under the curse of obligation. We're living under the possibility of blessing. And this blessing, for they shall be satisfied, I think is one of the great and primal needs of all of humanity. I think it's something I crave and need. But the great thing about the promise is this is not an act of my will. Who is the agent in this passage? Man, it's the Lord. It's that in my desire for righteousness, it's just that. It's my hunger and thirst for righteousness. God will bless me with what? With satisfaction, with the thing I crave most in this world. And the true satisfaction, the permanent scratch of that itch, it's a free gift from God. But again, I come back to this question, okay, that's great, I really, I really believe that, but my heart is inclined another direction. I don't have the capacity to just turn my will and to be hunger, hungry and thirsty for the righteousness of God. Again, I think the power of Christ on the cross uh, makes this possible. 
One way to think about this is to look at the English derivation of the word blessing. I didn't know this until I was looking it up. I'm not talking about the original languages the scripture was written in, but in English, the word blessing comes from the word bledzian, which means consecrated by blood. And I think there are many meanings of blessing. This is not the only meaning, but I think in some ways to think about blessing as an act of consecration of Christ's blood on the cross for me. Yes, to deliver me from sin and to give me eternal life. But more than that, to give me so much more than that, in fact, the capacity to be satisfied is something that the blood of Christ can give me. Not because of who I am, not because of my inclinations, in fact, in spite of them. It's the only thing that can truly satisfy. It's the only thing that can deliver me from the trap and prison of the poverty mentality that I choose over and over again. So what do we do with this? Where do we go from here? I think the promise of Matthew 5, 6 is that the satisfaction we can derive from the sacrifice of Christ to transform and rewire and kind of heal the genetic disorder that's deep, deep in our hearts and histories gives us the capacity to then serve, then to live out the calling to relational engagement with the poor. Uh, I don't have it up here, but in 2 Corinthians 9, describing the heart of a man after God, uh, these words are used. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. That if the core of our hearts is a yearning for righteousness, implicit in that, implicit in that, is a desire to serve and love and give to the poor. This is at the core of how God understands righteousness. And this is the kind of freedom in Christ that he wants us to give. Let's be clear, in following Christ and hungering and thirsting after righteousness, in longing for relation with the poor so we can share in God's liberation and blessings, we will sacrifice. Choosing to follow the witness of our brothers and sisters of Christ in Congo, to open our lives and relationships to people in need, will mean that we will lose some of our wealth and we will lose some of our comfort. But in the economy of the kingdom of God, what is gained so far surpasses what is lost that the value calculation doesn't even make sense. It's obvious. Uh, let me read uh, finally from Philippians 3, 7 through 14 to close today. This is Paul describing the economics of the kingdom of God and what is lost and gained. But whatever were gains to me now, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but, what which, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Man, amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this community. God, thank you so much for who you've created us to be, creatures that have a deep longing to be satisfied. God, thank you that through your sacrifice on the cross and only through your sacrifice on the cross, we can fulfill the deepest longings of our heart. I just pray that as we grapple with the question of, of who is the poor to me and who is the poor to us uh, and how we might follow your commands to serve, God, that this would be from a spirit of liberation and this would be from a spirit of joy uh, and the desire to be your agents in the world, uh, engaging with people in need, transforming their lives, not so we can assuage guilt, not so that we can feel good about ourselves, but God, so that you are glorified in this world through us. We can't do this by our own strength. We can't do this with our own desires, Lord. So we just pray for your grace and your power to come into our lives by the blood of Christ. Renew our desires and hearts and incline them to you and to the poor among us. For this in your name, amen.